0: Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 37. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them, And take them back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal house devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Amen. How can we believe that God loves us and is
1: working for our good no matter what? How can we say that it's all meant for good? Well, to answer that question and others like it, the Bible doesn't give you uh, a verse, it doesn't even give you a commandment. The Bible gives you a story, it gives you this story, the story of Joseph, which we're going to be looking at for four weeks starting today. And this story, you may know, is one of the most beloved in all the Bible because this story is narratively and theologically the high point of the book of Genesis. In other words, it's awesome. It's a good story and the reason it's so beloved and the reason it's so awesome is because this book and this story really, I think more than any other, really speaks to the deepest needs the human heart has and it answers the most profound questions the human mind asks because many of you probably came in here today like many others across the country. Today. You come into church asking, well, well, how can the Bible not just say, but how can the Bible insist That God is working all things for the good of people who love him. We ask, if there is a God, he seems like sometimes in my life like asleep at best or incompetent at worst. Or sometimes we may ask, well, how can we say, how can anybody think that God could redeem and use a life like mine? Well, to answer all those questions and more, I hope to to show you today from this passage that God is working right now in your life to redeem you, redeem me redeem us in three primary ways we're going to take a look at how God redeems us through number one through surprise the element of surprise through number two silence and finally a secret there's a secret here in the passage I hope to show you but let's begin here in number one and look at the the two surprises that God uh, uses to work in our lives and to see those I want to begin by doing some context work here and taking a look at the person of Joseph and if you've been here by this time in Genesis you know you've seen that in the beginning chapters one and two that God created the world good he made the world good he made people Good, But then those people he made turned their backs on him. They broke his heart. They disobeyed his command to them. But yet in the middle of all the the brokenness and the mess, God came to them and said that one day he was going to send a savior. God said one day he was going to send a a deliverer, a, a rescuer who would end all evil. He said that one day that the seed, the offspring of the woman, that's Eve, that one day that seed would come and rescue the world and so the rest of the book of Genesis really traces the story of the seed and we've seen the seed come to the lives of people like Seth and then through Noah and then through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob except there's one problem that we've seen as we've gone on Uh, this this family this carrier of the seed is a mess It's a mess. It's so messed up. It's so fractured. It's so flawed. And perhaps there's no more flawed carrier of the seed than the person of Jacob that we've been looking at. And Jacob was especially a mess. And we're going to see all of that mess reach a boiling point today. Because now in chapter 37, the fruit of all the generational curses that Jacob, all his ancestors, have walked in for years are coming down now into the lives of his twelve. Twelve sons. And we are introduced to one of those sons in particular, the protagonist of the story. His name is Joseph. And we're introduced to Joseph with this one detail, which means in Hebrew narrative, when you get a name and a detail, that's how you're supposed to read the character of that person. Back at the beginning of the chapter, we're told who Joseph is And what Joseph does, take a look, it says, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father now this phrase here bad report this literally means in Hebrew uh, that means evil slander it means evil slander see this bad report isn't like Jacob being a tattletale on him like they lost a sheep or something or maybe like they couldn't pass the president's fitness fitness test you know they got they got a bad report dad meant to be in the class no he's not being a tattletale Joseph is lying to his father about his brothers. He is actively slandering them. He is trying to harm them. By the time he's a teenager, he knows full well what he's doing. Why would he be trying to injure his family in this way? Well, the very next verse shows you why. It says, Now Israel, that's Jacob, Loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored or multicolored tunic. See, Jacob, like his father before him, Jacob now favored one of his own sons, his own father. Isaac had not loved him, leaving Jacob with a giant hole in his heart that he first tried to fill with the love of his mother Rebekah, then with the love of his favorite wife Rachel. And Rachel had died, leaving him now. His son, favorite son, Joseph. In other words, when Jacob looked at Joseph, he saw Rachel. He saw Rebecca. He saw his hopes and his future and all that he longed to ever have and feel. He poured into the heart of one of his sons at the expense of all the others. What was the result? It's this. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. See Jacob, by poisoning one had poisoned them all. So, what do you do when you know that your brothers hate you? Right? Let's say you're Joseph. You know your brothers hate you. You know they got a bone to pick with you. They don't like you. Well, what do you do if you're Joseph? Do you do you, you know do you do you go and try to make amends? Huh? Do you try to reconcile? You know, humble yourself? No. Apparently, you go to them and tell them you're better than they are. Because that's what he does. It says he has a series of dreams in which his entire family is bowing down to him. And he, he goes on purpose to rub his status as the favorite in their faces. And he tells his brothers that they're all like tiny stalks of wheat that bow down to his large stalk. And, and, if, and he tells them basically, you know, at the size of their stalks, Pales in comparison to the size of his stock. Now, if you want to read a kind of juvenile innuendo in there, be my guest because that is what is happening. This is coming from the mouth of a spoiled, insecure 17 year old in sort of a locker room of brothers. He's insulting the size of their stocks. Then he says they're all like tiny stars compared to him. He's going to outshine them all. Yeah. What do his brothers do? What's their reaction? One word. It's the word hate. Not only once, not only twice, three times, so you won't miss it. It says they hated him, then they hated him some more, and finally they hated him, quote, even more. Yeah. Joseph's on a collision course to ruin by the age of 17, and his brothers are as well. They're about to try to commit, before they're talked out of it, the sin of uh, fratricide. They're about to repeat the sin of Cain all over again. As a reader, you got to be aware of this and you should be thinking, is this the family of God? Haven't they made any progress? Are we back to Cain and Abel? You know, all over again. I thought this family was the one supposed to redeem the world. Whew, well, let's pause right here in the middle of all this mess. And just ask, well, what are we supposed to learn from this? What's God showing us here? I think God's showing us, first of all, this surprising message. And the surprising message is this. First of all, God is showing us exactly who we are as human beings. That's what's happening. And let me try to just back up and ask you a question to prove my point. Let me ask you, here's the question. Where are the good guys in the story? Huh? We're the good guys. Is there even one? The answer is no. There is not even one. As a matter of fact... When you read Genesis, you'll find that they're all deeply flawed, deeply broken. There's not like, really like a good guy or good girl in there consistently. And, and as a matter of fact, some of you may be even reeling now. You're trying to, still trying to get past that last bit about Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Sorry, three services. You say it enough, it's going to happen. But Jacob, Joseph, uh, all his family, because if you're like most people, you've never seen it that way before, because if you're like most people, like me, you grow up sort of America, churchy, you go to Sunday school and you think, oh, the Bible. It's primarily, you know, it's like, it's like a spiritual Aesop's fables. That's what's happening here. You know, like, you don't do this, you don't do that. You don't cross the, the, the stream on the fox's back. Remember that one, Aesop's fable? You don't complain about the sour grapes, right? You remember that one? Uh, and the Bible's full of fine moral examples called the patriarchs who are here to show me how exactly I should live my life. Well, how's dysfunction and conspiracy to murder your own, you know, your your brother's doing for you? It's not, that's not what the Bible's about at all. This isn't about traditional religion, right? Which says, here are the rules. And if you obey the rules, you'll earn the favor of the gods. Because if you think that's what this is, Of course you're going to be offended by these passages. And by the way, if you're offended by this, just hold on to your seat for next week. Fair warned is forearmed, as they say. Chapter 38. I mean, some of you know what I'm talking about. I mean, be like these people? Are you kidding? They're a mess. But if you'll see what the Bible is really all about, not religion. No, it's primarily about a God of grace who comes into the lives of people who do not deserve it and who least expect it. Then you will come, like I have, to love these stories in a whole new way because they're not here mainly to try to give you some how-tos and how-not-tos, although those are in there a bit. No, they're mainly trying to, here's the point, show you the human condition, who we really are, And what God plans to do about it. So who are we? Oh, we're the ones... In need of rescue. Just like Abraham needed to be rescued. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, his brothers. Every single generation is a mess. And has to rediscover the God of the Bible. The God of reality for themselves. And if you don't understand that. Hear me. The power of the Christian faith. And the power especially of the story of Joseph. Will never be yours. Who are we? Oh come on. People in need of rescue. That's a surprise here. We're people in need of a savior. But second, and just as important, you should see this doesn't just show us who we are as people. This shows us a surprising way that God grows us. And that surprising way God grows people, what do I mean? I mean this to break free like Joseph eventually does of hidden patterns of sin. Here's the thought. You can't just be told your faults. You must be shown your faults right I mean rarely do you hear you've got this issue and then you change right that did not happen like that it happened in my life right no you have to be shown your faults through relationships they play out in the context of a big story see people rarely change through hearing a command no they're broken through relationships and they heal the same way let me give you two quick examples the latent, and here's the word, racism in my life through my family was never really revealed, never addressed until I became a Christian at the age of 19 in college in the middle of a multi-ethnic campus ministry, and Jesus touched my life, and then I was sort of strong-armed by the group pastor there to move into this house with these other guys from the ministry, but they were all from different backgrounds and ethnicities, and there was one young man there, an African-American guy who, through his own life experiences, didn't really like SPF 75 wearing people like like me. Some of you are saying he had to buy stock in Banana Boat or Copper Tone or whatever that is. Yeah, probably should. But we wrestled, literally, over things like race and, and, and how, when you know, Morgan, when you say those words and when you think like that it betrays a certain kind of classism or 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 prejudice or superiority and those things were hard for me to hear especially when at the same time he's giving me the lecture he's eating my groceries without asking me but that's how that goes with their whole roommate deal right whatever he did save my life one night when our house got shut up true story (laughs) but I could never have been told I had this racism in my heart. Nor could I have been healed from any of that until I was shown that through relationships and hearing. That's why things like name calling in our culture, shaming people, never really works. It never really changes people. Relationships change people. That's what we're all about in TGA. Right as you've heard. See, so you, because you can't be told your faults. You have to be shown your faults and when I got married second example exhibit B it was sort of more of the same right Uh, by the time I was a uh, when I got married I was a a minister at the age of 25 and surely as you know God only chooses wise and humble leaders (laughs) 25 fully formed character (laughs) to be ministers right and who can thankfully instruct their wives in how to be more flawless right like they are it's a miracle I'm still married yeah it's a miracle I could never have been told how selfish I was I never could have been healed to the degree I've been healed of any of that until I was shown that right in a story in a in a relationship what what got Joseph's family into the mess come on relationships right but how do how were they healed in the end it's beautiful through their relationships at the end. See, you don't always get into the mess. You've gotten in on your own and you don't get out on your own relationships. Show you your faults and you can grow through them if you let them. Listen, don't just come here and go. Don't do it. Dig in. Dig into people here. It's the power to change your life. That's number one. God redeems us in surprising ways. Ways we never would have thought. But now let's transition and look at the second thing. The second way he redeems us. God also redeems us through hmm, another kind of a surprise. It's through a kind of silence. Through a kind of silence. So let's ask, well, how does, how does then God begin to intervene? Right, It's a mess, man. They're broken. They're about to kill each other, literally. How does God begin to heal the whole deal, intervene? Well, he sends Joseph a series of dreams which lead... To what looks like sheer chaos, like a series of coincidences, a simple, pure chance. Because when you read the whole story of the chapter and you see the story play out, you've you got to slow it down because Hebrew narrative goes so fast. If you don't cue the slow-mo, you'll miss what's happening. Let me try to show you. Joseph's brothers here we picked up the reading are out you know in the family business they're they're, they're watching sheep they're taking care of the family business Joseph's not out with them probably a good idea dad didn't go so well the last time they were together but anyway dad's going to send Joseph back out to them again to check up on him and so but when Joseph shows up to where his brothers have been he shows up there and he just misses them wow you think, well, what's happening here in the story? This is kind of boring, right? Just misses him. What's, what's, what's all this about? He walks in as they walk out. And what happens? It says, Joseph then begins to wander around a field. Oh, it's like he's doing donuts in the church parking lot. Man, I don't even know what he's doing. Why is he here? And then the Hebrew text says, behold. It's a way of saying, don't miss this part, so what's this part you're not supposed to miss? Behold, it says, a man found him wandering in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? Well, Joseph just happens running to the guy. And the man, it says, just happened to overhear his brother say, we should go to Dothan, right? So Joseph goes to Dothan and his brothers plot to kill him. But Reuben, the oldest, thankfully talks him out of killing him. He downsgrades it to you know, something way more humane, like throwing him in a pit without water for an extended period of time. So Reuben can, you know, get him out later. But then... Reuben mysteriously vanishes when the Midianite traders just happening to be passing by at that exact moment he's gone. And by the way, what are Midianite traders doing out in the desert? This is like a a fleet of 18 wheelers in a caravan in the Sahara. This doesn't ever happen. But Reuben, because he's gone now, the brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt but if Joseph never goes to Egypt he never gets sold to Potiphar as a slave which means he never gets betrayed by Potiphar's wife which means he never goes to prison which means he never meets the cupbearer for whom he interprets a dream which means that when the whole world is at risk from a global famine 20 years later Joseph is never called out of prison to interpret Pharaoh's dream to heal his family and to save the world that's the story yeah And you read this and you think, Morgan, Are you telling me that the fate of Egypt, the fate of the world, the fate of the seed, right? Because if the family of the seed dies, if Jacob's family dies, the seed dies with it, right? And if the seed dies, are you telling me the Savior of the world, Jesus, never comes? And if the Savior never comes, my life can't be redeemed. This church isn't here. The plan of human history never comes to pass. And Morgan, are you telling me that the fate of the world rests upon a stranger wandering in a field someday in Dothan? Yes. Exactly what I'm saying. Morgan, are you telling me that a random chance crossing at an intersection in the middle of nowhere is what God's plan for history hangs on it? Say, Morgan, are you telling me that if one detail changes, we wouldn't be here today? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what I'm telling you, because that's exactly what this is telling you. This is a storytelling device trying to show you something about how God works in our lives. Bible commentators will tell you, unlike all kinds of other uh, people and stories in the Bible, especially in Genesis, by comparison, God seems to be curiously, absent in joseph's life right i mean god shows up in all kinds of ways with abraham right you know visions uh sacrifice you know he's talking to him all the time he's got him on speed dial abraham do this go up there take him up the mountain right he speaks to isaac uh, he literally wrestles jacob but in here in joseph's moment of crisis when he's thrown into a pit when he's thrown into prison and he's sold into slavery for more than a decade god never speaks it's like he simply vanished right I read one commentator who was right when she said that God didn't speak to Joseph, like he spoke to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But she was wrong when she said that God was distant from Joseph. I mean, come on, right? Define, distant. Define distant. I mean, I ask you, when you stand back and you look at the sweep of the story, is God distant here? No, He was just silent, but his silence was not his absence. And as a matter of fact, unlike Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are dramatically shown that God was intimately involved with the course of human history. Everything, He's involved the whole way. Even when it looks like chance encounters, God's working it all, steering it all to bring about redemption in Joseph's life, in his family's life. This is pleading with you. Don't make the mistake of thinking God in there. Don't make that mistake. Don't make a mistake of thinking God's silence is his absence. After all, how would you know you human? He isn't at work in your life. My wife, Carrie, is from Southern California. She got a scholarship to run track at the University of Houston. And because of her family's schedule, she arrived there a bit early because she happened to arrive there early. Her roommate hadn't checked into campus yet because her roommate wasn't there and she didn't know anyone. She said, I'll go to a concert to try to meet people. And so when she got to the concert, she happened to meet a guy who asked her out. And so she gave him her number. And so uh, she said yes to the date. A few days later, they went out. And as they were, this isn't me. By the way, I come into the story later uh, when it came apparent that the guy was a jerk, or as she called him, calls him now, loser guy. Some of you all, ladies, you've been out with that guy, right? Uh, she asked him to drop her off early at campus, feeling dejected from the date. She just happens to want a Coke to pick her up with some sugar, right? So she happens to wander down into the basement of the, of the Bates, as we call it, the Bates Motel. They're the Bates Dormitory at the University of Houston. She just happened to see the literal one person she had met on campus, a guy named Mario. And Mario just happened to be sitting at a table with someone whose name was Matt Rash, one of my closest friends, who's now a church planner in Marseille, France. We support him as a church. He may be here later in the year. And Matt had just come to know Jesus and is preaching to Mario, when Mario spies Carrie with a Coke in her hand, calls her over, sensing a way out, pulls a bait and switch on Matt, gets Carrie to sit down, he takes off, and Carrie is left there all alone <laughs> with Matt Rash who preaches the gospel to her, invites her to church where she comes to know Jesus a few nights later. A few months later, she just happens to meet a really handsome baseball player (laughs) from Irving, Texas, who basically had lucked his way into a scholarship Had had a teammate who invited him, happened to invite him to the meeting of the night where he meets Jesus and Carrie on the same night. Morgan, are you telling me that if Carrie... Had happened not just, you know, to just not show up early for school. If she just happened to not want a Coke or say yes to the guy on the date. You know, go to the basement at 10 o'clock at night. She wouldn't have met Matt, Jesus, you, and all the good things that have happened since then. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Where was God? He was there the whole time. Working at all for her good, my good, our good. And let me show you, here's what this means in the end. This means, listen, you've got to see this, that you cannot compare how God is working in your life right now to how he's working in anybody else's life. You cannot compare how he works, how he delivers, how he rescues. And here's how you can know this, because years later, in this same spot in a place called Dothan, it was small in Joseph's day, another great story, another great deliverance happened in Dothan years later. The prophet Elisha was now living in Dothan, and the king of Syria, in this one story I think it's second kings the king of Syria comes down and he surrounds the place and he threatens Elisha's life and when everyone around Elisha in Dothan is going nuts with fear do you know you may remember what Elisha prayed he prayed God open their eyes show them there's more with us than there are against us and God does it he shows all the people how he'd sent angels fire fire chariots and all surrounding them to save them. And that's amazing. They were all spared. That's spectacular. And as a matter of fact, that's actually the kind of deliverance I want. <laughs> I want chariots of fire. I want angels with swords. I want the red sea to part. I want instant deliverance. Guess what Elisha got? Lord, I claim your word. Like Elisha, you were delivered him. May it be true for me in Jesus' name, right? But what kind of deliverance? Same spot. Is this that Joseph's getting a stripping, a beating, what looks like complete abandonment. Why? Oh, Elisha only needed his body to be saved. Joseph needed not just his body, but his soul to be healed, his soul to be saved, and a whole lot more than him. See, if Joseph is saved here, if God answers his cry from the pit, Joseph and a whole lot more than Joseph will be lost. But if he's lost here, he'll be saved. The world will be saved later. See, same place, different deliverance, different redemption. Here you may see you may see a friend in this church, a friend in your life getting the thing that you've been praying for, right? Come on. Promotion, blessing, right? Favor, deliverance, house, marriage, kids, who I don't know. Don't compare. You can't compare. God is up to something immeasurably more than you can imagine. See, sometimes, and I don't know why, God hides Himself in the middle of our pain. But what this story, the middle of this, this story, but the story is begging you to see God is there the whole time. Sometimes, though, it just takes time to see what he's doing. Don't quit. He's with you in the middle of it. First, God redeems us through some surprises. Second, through some silence, some mysterious silence. But finally, and I love this, let's look at this. He redeems us through A secret. There's a secret here in the story I want to try to show you. Uh, and, And because by now some of you are alternately confused... And encourage you're encouraged because you like that last point, right? You think, yes, God's with me. The pastor told me he hadn't quit on me. I like that part. But then you're confused because you think, this isn't the God of Sunday school. If I do the thing, if God helps those who help themselves, right? I thought I heard in Sunday school, if I was, you know, early to bed and early to rise, he would make me healthy, wealthy, and wise, and all the other stuff there in Hesitations chapter (laughs) 7, verse 4 that I heard about. Why is this? Why are we alternately confused, and yet attracted to this story, here's what I think. I think we're attracted to this this because of the secret pattern of salvation we see here, and here's what it is. And to show you the pattern, I want to introduce you now to someone who's been hiding in the story the whole time. Uh, Someone who's been lurking here, someone who's been sort of Facebook stalking you in the story the whole time. There's a secret Joseph here, a hidden Joseph, like a, like a greater Joseph. Because centuries after the first Joseph, there was another one who was rejected by the ones he came to seek. There was another Joseph who went out looking for his brothers and who also was sold for a bag of silver. His brothers sold him into captivity where he was mistreated. He was abused. And this Joseph, the greater one, also emerged victoriously from his betrayal. But whereas first, Joseph never chose any of it, but had to go through it for his soul to be healed. Jesus Christ chose all of it. He chose the pit of suffering, that place of abandonment for us so that we could be healed. Jesus Christ was sold, stripped of his clothes, and actually died so that his family, us, the family of humanity, could be brought together and healed again. What does this show us? It shows us that the greatest deliverances God works in the Bible, in our lives, come through the Redeemer that people reject. Oh, it happens over and over. In the Bible, it's like this theological trail of breadcrumbs of goodies that leads you to the heart of God. Do you remember Gideon? Gideon is rejected by his his family, but if he's not rejected by the people, he can't deliver them. Uh, Samson is rejected by his brothers, yet if he's not rejected, then he can't saved him and perhaps the greatest of all these acts chapter 7 is moses who because he was rejected by his family now he can become their deliverer god saves through the rejection of the redeemer why oh it's because god's redeemers never look heroic they never look imposing. They never look like the kind of person you would choose, like some Marvel superhero. The greatest proof of this is Jesus, the prophet Isaiah, said to him, he was despised. And what? Despised and rejected. Rejected. He was like someone from whom people hide their faces. The Gospel of John says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Why? Oh, here's why. Listen, if humanity, if we would have received and recognize and crown Jesus we could have said aha there it is we are good enough and smart enough and doggone it that's why you like us God we got it in ourselves morally to recognize what's right we've got it God we're good we got it Jesus you go ahead and be our nice moral example Woo-hoo. good on you mate but Joseph's brothers never had it in them all along. Humanity's never had it in us all along. God's Redeemer is always rejected. And yet, because Joseph is handed over, he saves his brothers in the end. And because Jesus was handed over by us, he becomes the Savior, deliverer in the end. And is exalted not to the right hand of Pharaoh, but of Almighty God, who can save you and rescue you and redeem you and pull you out and free you, provide for you today. And to meet him, you not only have have to meet him in his weakness that is to say to see him as of the kind of a savior you may never would have chosen but it means that if you really want to change you want to grow to be healed you got to meet him in your weakness in humility today see we're not saved by saying oh i'm fine how i am thank you very much we're saved by saying oh jesus i need you to rescue me I am the one that you came for. I'm the one who delivered you over. I'm the one who sold you for a bag of silver. George Herbert was a 17th century Christian poet, someone after whom one of our presidents was named, by the way. George Herbert loved God. He studied to become a minister. But, uh, for years he studied to become a minister. His great dream was to become a vocational uh, pastor. And he studied and studied for years. But his sicknesses and his debilitating illnesses kept him back from it. And when at the age of 35 he finally recognized and realized his dream and became a minister, passed his test, was confirmed and ordained, The week after that, he died. He died. Before he died, he wrote a poem called Joseph's Coat. Joseph's Coat. It talked about his suffering and all the ways that he suffered and people suffered. But how he knew that because of Jesus and because of uh, the story of Joseph, God was loving him through all of it. And these closing words of the poem, I want to tell you, they're yours today. They're mine today. They've moved my heart all week. And here they are. Herbert wrote this. He said, now I live to show his power, who once did bring my joys to weep, but now my tears to sing. Isn't that beautiful? He's saying, even though he has suffered, even though he's wept, even though it feels like God has left him in a pity, he knows that because of Jesus, God has never really abandoned him. And now the things that have brought him to weep have been turned into this song of his life. Listen, we're still singing Herbert's song in a way today. What made the difference for him? Oh. He called it Joseph's coat. Last thought. The coat. What was that? The coat. The coat. Joseph's coat was a symbol of a father's undying love for his child. And yeah, man, how Joseph got it was tweaked and twisted. It was weird, but yet, at its core, at its essence, the coat was all about a symbol of a father's undying love for his child. Let me ask you, do you know that God has this for you? The New Testament says that when we come to know Jesus, God puts that kind of coat on us. He called it the robe of righteousness, the thing that, it, that draws God's love to Jesus. Now we get, let me tell you, that kind of thing is yours today. Go get that coat, church. Go get it. It's yours today. It's ours in the gospel. If you have that, like Herbert had, you can handle anything even suffering, disappointment. Can you say with him, oh, now, God, I'd live to show your power. Sing his power. Who once did bring my joys to weep. Now, my tears to sing.